Hey, Simon. <laughs> hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. Simon. How you doing? Hey. Hello. 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 Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi, my name is Simon Brooks and I am the host of Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts and folk and fairy tales from our elders, a meeting with professional storytellers. A few months ago I was approached by Chelsea Green Publishers, just up the road here in Vermont, asking about interviewing a guy called Martin Shaw for a book they just published. Apparently he was a British storyteller. Well, yes, why not? I had heard of Martin Shaw, the actor, who played Ray Doyle in the TV show The Professionals when I was growing up, but had not heard of Martin Shaw, the storyteller, so I looked him up. His work floored me, inspired me, shook my tree. I read his book, recently published, the one that they sent me to read, Courting the Wild Twin, and ordered another of his books, which I'm still reading, Night Wages. His words are balm and fire, poetic, mythic, and much needed. I was very much looking forward to this interview, and I was not disappointed. I am thrilled to introduce my conversation with Martin Shaw, mythologist and storyteller. Well, Martin, thank you so much for joining me for this Conversations with Storytellers. I really do appreciate it. Um, I was uh, given a copy of Courting with the Wild, your new book, which is... Uh, just come out over here in the US. And I loved it so much that I went out and bought another one of your books, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. It's excellent. Really like your writing a lot. Um, so I've been very much looking forward to this interview. So could you tell me a little bit about your, your childhood growing up? What was the young Martin Shaw like? The young Martin Shaw, as all uh, reports from my schools will testify, was a dreamer. Uh, I was a little romantic. I was obsessed with the notion of chivalry, you know, the old troubadour notion of gallantry, yeah. uh, always throwing my coats into puddles for people to walk over. Um, I've talked about this quite a lot before, but it is important to growing up, to grow up in a house without a television or a phone or a car cleared the decks for the weight of stories to arrive. Uh, my dad at the time was a young preacher, so I was being exposed to a lot of church, a lot of sermons, a lot of biblical stories, and I enjoyed that to a degree, but whenever I was actually out and about walking with my father, and my earliest memories of hearing stories are on foot. I just really? okay. talked about that today. I'm walking along with him. We're walking through the little cop's a forest behind the small estate we grew up on. Uh, and this is like a housing estate, not a, a state of great wealth. <laughs> We're walking through the wood uh, and he would instinctively start to tell snippets of maybe an Arthurian story or Robin Hood or something like that. And these stories, I have to say, had a kind of glee and uh, aliveness to them that I wasn't really encountering in the pulpit on a Sunday. I learned with dad very early on, if I just said, say more, say more, he would. And this is all happening when I'm about five. So as I'm hearing him tell these stories, I'm paying attention to the way the walk changes as I hear the story. It seemed in my memory, almost 50 years on, the choreo choreography of the weather would sort of alter as he told the tale. Um, it seemed that stories reached out and touched the world when he told them. Uh, and I loved that. And actually what he would do quite organically was as we walked around the small area of Torquay that we lived in, because he'd lived there all his life, he, in an Aboriginal sense, knew the song lines of the place. He knew everything about every... <laughs> There'd been some misdemeanor in every alley or lane or cops we walked through, and he would regale me with it to my immense delight for about a decade solid. Wow. So that's really when story comes in. 
we this was also in the era i think where you know we we had vinyl at home we had records and so there'd be these double albums of um spoken word stuff it could be you know richard burton or it could be the evangelist billy graham but one way or another there was wild flowery language floating through the house day and night and i got infected you know oh i bet i bet that gave you an amazing sense of place as well i mean if he's regaling every single story of every single alley that he knew that must have really grounded you it did. I mean, I was oblivious to it. I didn't realize this was happening right, right. because I was a kid and I thought it happened to everybody. But I think what my dad set up for me, and it's a dynamic that has not changed. And if you've read my work, you'll know that I do this. He would flip from personal anecdote into folktale or fairy tale and then back again very quick. So I immediately got the organic message that these stories were not rather like Moses coming down from the mountain and etched in stone. They were fluid, playful, deep expressions of the mysteries of life. Uh, So I just took it all in as a kid is meant to, without too much reflection. Yeah, that's amazing. So was he a big influence, do you think? I mean, it sounds like he was. Yeah, was and is. Was and is, you know, he's not not that old. He's in his 60s, you know. So uh, he was a young dad. Yeah, um, he was and is a natural storyteller, not an overbearing presence, but very playful, very enthusiastic, very encouraging. And he was the guy that did this sort of Dick Turpin stand and deliver type storytelling. It just burst out of him. (laughs) My mum was the other gatekeeper, the other custodian, And mum was the one who did something equally important, which was to read to me. And so you got the kind of the the gravitas of story came with my mother and the Hermian glee of story came with my dad. So I I sort of moved between the two like an excitable hare for many years. (laughs) I learned to read very young and writers like Alan Garner were very important to me. Susan Cooper blew my mind. Oh, yeah. Uh, That whole world, as I said, if I could have got my hands on television, I would have gobbled it up 24 hours a day. But I couldn't. Uh, And now, many years later, I'm very glad that to some degree I learnt to live with what my friends regarded as limit. But actually for me, it kind of, it kept it kept my imagination fertile because I wasn't supplied with images. I had to right. supply myself. My own mind had to flesh this stuff out every time my dad told me a story. He wouldn't describe it in the way you do a contemporary novel. Right. He'd just say, one day there was an old man walking down a lonely track from the fair. Boom. And I'm in. But I'm doing the work. I can't freeze yes. frame that like I would, you know, Cecil B. DeMille. Right, right. So in some ways, almost, I mean, the way that you would describe your friend saying that you were limited, it was they who were limited because their imaginations were limited by what they saw on the TV screen, whereas your imagination was let to run wild. Do you, I mean, that's a very good point. Uh, do you not think that there's a tyranny of choice these days? Oh, that yeah. actually, there's a kind of there's a there's a paralysis in it. You yeah. cannot make a decision. A few years ago, I wrote a book called Scatterlings, which was a kind of uh, uh, a kind of mythopoetic audit of Dartmoor, where I live, and I decided. You know what it's like in storytelling. Everybody turns up with a didgeridoo under one arm and a tale from Tibet on the other, and no one's ever been anywhere. And it's all this, everything hovers in the realm of what I would call fantasy, but not necessarily imagination. I think imagination for me, to some degree, is rooted in place. A real storyteller, to some degree, we all know as storytellers that some stories travel and nomadic, but others really are referring to a particular bend in the river. Right. Yeah. So Scatterlings is about me trading exponential possibility as a storyteller 
and saying, no, actually, I'm only going to talk about the ground that's actually under my feet. Now, this got a kind of mixed response when I wrote it, because people said, well, it's bloody all right for you. I live in Clapham in London, and uh, I don't see hundreds of miles of wilderness every day. But I said, well, actually, William Blake lived in London. Right, yeah. William Blake saw, uh, you see a thistle sticking out of the pavement. William Blake sees a little glowing grey man waving at him. It's not so much what you see for a storyteller, it's how you see it. Right. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Absolutely. Um, I, I recently discovered Frank Turner, musician, and he just released this album, um, which are all songs about powerful women. Uh, one of them is about his mom, which I think is great. But he talks about these places. And when you listen to the songs, they really ground you into that place. You know, he's, he's singing from a place of connection as well as a place of history. It's, it's phenomenal. I love that stuff. Mm. Do, you, do you remember any of the... Uh, let me rephrase this. Reading um, the book I'm reading right now of yours, uh, you, you talk about Robin Hood. Is that one of your favorite childhood memories? Is it oh, yeah. as, as a story? Oh, God almighty. It will always be. <laughs> will always be. Robin, I mean, there's nothing. You, you, you can't top Robin Hood. That's not possible. That is not possible. For me, you see, Robin Hood is the wild twin of King Arthur. Yes, yes. It really is. Because actually the Robin Hood stories gain traction just after the Norman invasion. They get traction when England, beautiful, ancient, old England, is under duress from the French. And I always feel that Robin, who we know is an exiled royal, he is always the deep conscience. He's the deep conscience of Britain when it's in trouble. Robin is the energy that helps us remember who we are. And you go deeper into those stories, and they're fantastic. One of the stories that's in the night wage as you may have seen it is the fact that robin had an earlier wife than made marion yeah i i didn't know that that was fascinating when i stumbled on that i'm gonna have to yeah. dig around and do some more research dig around there's, it's in the balance it's in the balance clorinda queen uh, of the shepherds and she's very much an equal to robin in terms of frank turner's strong women this is a super strong woman and she is his equal with the bow. She has a kind of charisma that mesmerizes the men. And there's this very beautiful, short, one story, as far as I'm aware, of Robin and Clorinda. And I've loved it since the moment. Can you remember, you know what it's like with storytelling. When you get into it, often for a while, you have a kind of beginner's luck. And every day, there's a new story attaching yeah. itself to you. And, and that changes it slows down, it does for me anyway, and a story arriving that really demands to be told, that happens now every few years, it doesn't have happen every few minutes. Right, yeah. So yeah I think you can imagine reading the ballads at three in the morning by candlelight and suddenly coming across this uh, earlier wife of Robin, who's this astonishing and inspirational figure. That's very exciting for a storyteller. This stuff doesn't come along every day. No, I think you're right. I wonder if it's like our inner bag of stories when we first, when we first start telling stories, the bag's empty and the bag requires it to be, requires us to fill it. And so these stories come to us and we dump them in the bag. And then as it starts to get full, maybe on a subconscious level, we're like, we're, we're, we're looking for more of the cream of the crop, as it were. We understand I, that there's a greater depth yes, in what we do. I think what you're describing is discernment. I yeah, think yeah. we are like excitable puppies at first. Yes. And uh, <laughs> suddenly, you know, it's Grimm's one day, it's a story from Turtle Island the next, it's this the next. And then over time, you begin to realize that, oh, okay, I myself am a weather pattern. I myself am a menagerie. I myself am in a particular shape that may or may not be suited to tell uh, Beowulf, for example. Right. I admire Beowulf as a story, but I do not have the certain kind of steadfast Scandinavian uh, character to carry that story very well. 
but when I first got into this, I would have tried anything because I didn't know that. Right. I didn't have that knowledge about myself yet. I'm afraid it's like a drunk at the feast and <laughs> you're, pressing, you're pressing your face into every available meal. <laughs> That's a great analogy, but yeah. Um, ironically, you, you mentioned Beowulf. It's, that was the same for me. It's one of my favorite stories. I've got, I don't know how many copies of this, the story, translations and whatnot. And I wanted to tell it so badly and I've never been able to tell it. And then on the flip side of that coin, there was Gilgamesh. When I first read Gilgamesh, I was like, that's ah, all right, but it's not, I don't want to tell that story. Then my kids are starting to learn. Well, my, my, my son learned it in middle school at sixth grade. So he was about 11. And I was like, that doesn't sound right. Your version that you're telling me doesn't sound like the one I read. And so I bought um, another copy, a different copy. And I was like, there's all these characters missing in what you're learning. This isn't, you know. And then the same thing with my daughter when she got to sixth grade. And then Aiden was doing, my son, he was doing uh, mythology in high school. And so I was like, I got to look into this more because they're not teaching it right. Mm. And so I ended up with a whole bunch of stories. And then I was like, I got to go into this school and tell them the real story of Gilgamesh. And then I fell in love with it. And now every year I go to this school for the, for the sixth graders and I tell this as authentic as I can and being as appropriate as I can, but using a few euphemisms here and there instead yeah, of like, yeah, once you get <laughs> do into it, you know, yeah. you do need a few, uh, a few euphemisms. Well, good for you, man. That's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. It's a great story, but Beowulf, I'd love to tell that, but I'm just, I don't think I'm the right person. No, you know? So, um, how, how did you find yourself becoming a storyteller? What was that route, that route like mm. for you? Well, I think you won't be surprised that as a kid growing up, I had no idea that storytelling in a formal function existed, really. Uh, I knew that I had a chatty dad, you know, <laughs> who told stories great. Um, but, this, but this notion of the storyteller as a kind of custodian of information, of possibly even wisdom, that I was uh, was hidden from me, I think, in some way. Not not consciously. Life just did it. I didn't know. I'd seen women in libraries read stories, and I valued that. But telling them is not the same as reading them. It's absolutely not the same. You are having a much more precarious, unexpected ride when you just tell it. Not even as a recital. So it's not. Um, I'm not a storyteller ever that learns things by heart. Although ironically, some of my favorite storytellers do do that. It's a sort of visionary incantation. But again, that's, uh, I'm more of a, a jazz musician in a way. Yeah. I like the trills and the unexpected bits. I, the door's wide open to that. So anyway, I'm growing up. When I am in my 20s, I go through all the usual catastrophes that everybody else does. Life starts to mal seemingly malfunction. And I find myself going back to the Arthurian stories, the stories of Finn McCall, uh, the Mabinogion, um, many, many fairy tales particularly. And I realize they are addressing in the most beautific, philosophical and fantastic manner all the crap I'm going through. Yeah. All the stuff. There's, yes. There is nothing, I swear to you, there's nothing too sophisticated going on in your life that a story hasn't got an angle on for you. Oh, absolutely. There's nothing. It is, it is ornate and beautific an art form as any philosophy, any art, any poetry. It's the top of the tree. You know, it's how... When human beings imagine, we imagine in stories primarily. Yeah. yeah. So I leapt back on it fervently from about 23 to 25. Specifically, uh, I'd ended up in Snowdonia in Wales, mm -hmm. where I had undergone a four-day vigil uh, on a small hill. And that very experience rattled me so profoundly opened up so many unexpected doors. When I got back, I, I noticed I didn't want to refer to it directly. I didn't want to say, this has happened to me, I, 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 I. But I felt that 
there were stories and folk tales that are continually dealing with people lost in the forest. And so I found that stories were a very dignified way to talk about very private things that were happening to me. Yeah. So, so if I've read my stuff right, this, this four day vigil that you call it up on yeah. Snowdonia, was that um, instigated, if that's the right word, by Wallace Black Elk? Yes, it was really. Um, and your no, vigil was I'm kind of like a vision quest, right? I'm, yes, it, no, it, it, that's exactly what it was. Let me just retrace my steps. I do want to, as you get older, you get a bit hazy, I'm afraid, once you're looking <laughs> back 20 years. Yeah. Let me think about this. No, it wasn't, it wasn't instigated by Wallace Blackout, but you're on the right track. I went out, I fasted, I came back, and it was clear that my old life had to radically change, and so it did. In the process of giving up all the things that I had to give up, very unexpectedly, uh, through a friend of mine, a mentor, David Wendelberry, I came into the presence of a Lakota Sioux medicine man, very briefly, called Wallace Black Elk. And Black Elk uh, gave me the kind of information that I think he would have given anybody. I'm not claiming any sort of uh, favoring in this. But he said... I can tell that your, your head has got opened up by the vision quest. If you're serious about this, you may consider going out and living out in the bush for four years to think about the four days that you spent out there, first of all. Wow. And it didn't happen overnight, but bit by bit by bit, through the mentoring with uh, Dave and another man, Nicholas Twilley, uh, the moment came where I could go out and I, I did that. So Wallace gave me a push because he could see that actually he could see the kind of distress I was in. And he really said to me something very alarming at the time. He said, there's a lot of teachers waiting for you, but most of them aren't human. Anyway, I better go. Bye-bye. And Wallace <laughs> is gone. I, ne I, never see, I never see him again. <laughs> Um, but that was the sort of, that was what I was left with. And also, also a feeling, a feeling that for my story, and I'm not, I think it's different for everybody. My work involved at that time stewing in the rather overcrowded English countryside of the West country. I couldn't go to any, I couldn't go to Amazonia. I couldn't go to Arizona. Yeah. I couldn't go to Siberia. I couldn't go to Tasmania. I just had to stew in where I came from. Wow. How hard was that when you realized that there was something else that you needed to, to try and attain? It was very painful uh, because, first of all, this is not a time of the World Wide Web. This is not a time yeah. of cell phones. This is a time where I would walk to a phone box with a bag filled with 20 pence pieces. And that was any communication to the outside world. It was a very focused act once a fortnight. Um, wow. it, was, it was painful. And not for a fraction of a second during that period, I mean this for a second, would I have been able to foresee the kind of life that I have now that would grow through me protecting this one or two seeds I had that I was in love with. Because that's really, it's just been a, a 25 year act of devotion. But that wasn't something that was understood or necessarily encouraged by other people. Because as you can imagine, by now, by the time I'm in my late 20s, my friends are in the, the full flow of a career. You know, yeah. there are salaries, babies are appearing. And it's, I really was, go, I was like a ghost. It was like, do you remember what happened to Martin Shaw? Has anybody seen the boy? Because uh -huh. uh, I was in a little valley, you know, far from, far from most places. That's amazing. So do you, st do you still keep in touch with some of those old friends of yours? Or have they, have you just... I do, I do. I do. There, was a, there was a time, a couple of years into living in the tent, I moved it. And I moved from that area and actually ended up coming down. Anybody that knows England may be able to see the geography of this. 
coming down the West Country back to Devon, where I was born. And that move didn't break those friendships, but it quietened it because actually then I was very much absorbed with returning uh, to where I'd grown up as a kid. I live even to this day less than 20 miles from those song lines I just described that I used to mm-hmm. walk with uh, my dad. Wow. Well, it's good that some of your friends stuck around, waited for you. That's great. Those are the best kind of friends. So <clears throat> you've written quite a lot, actually. Um, but you also tell your stories. Mm. So do you, do you consider yourself more of a writer or a storyteller? Or is it, is it like a very closely knit thing that you are both of those things? They're very different disciplines. They're not the same. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know incredibly good storytellers that should not even think about writing anything <laughs> down. And I know great writers who are hugely introverted and don't want to be in the public. So it's peculiar. I try not to overthink it, actually, the fact that I can move between the two. Um, I, this, is, this is the difference, I suppose. When I write, I notice that I am quietly gaining energy. I am receiving energy through my desk, working at my desk. When I tell, I adore the experience, but I'm giving energy. I'm not in receiving mode, not from humans anyway, I'm giving. Okay. And so when I have finished uh, a live, you know, uh, a live encounter, I'm absolutely knackered. Another thing that happens, which I'm sure many storytellers, and I'm sure yourself can relate to, is the horror of the lead up to actually going out and doing it. It's a godless experience. <laughs> that, that 40 minutes, what happens to me is a, is a deep, very unpleasant emptiness that comes into me. It's as if I've never known the story I'm about to tell. I shouldn't be telling the story I'm about to tell. And I feel a physical weakness in my own body. It's like all my limbs kind of, and I'm pacing up and down and I'm doing whatever, whatever is necessary at this point to try and galvanize me. But it's just, you are temporarily an empty vessel and you're meant to be because as we all know, in the end, what's going to come through is going to be a bit more than you anyway. Right. It's oh yeah. Little, yeah. 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 It's that, it's that extra thing that's going to make all of this work. But we as, as mortals, as simple human beings, that's terrifying it because is. suddenly we just look at ourselves and go, I am an utter fraud yes. and I should not be in this experience. <laughs> and then, you know, the gods take over. Yeah. We're just a conduit. I think when, when, when everything's going right, we are just the conduit for the story. It comes mm. through us. We're not, manipulating it all the energy that's outside of us the audience like the the location that we're in all of that is coming through us with the story all by itself and that that's that's what i love what lights your eyes up when you're when you're storytelling well uh the a very important thing for me a very important memo is that I never ever, as I'm telling a story, I'm never reciting words I learnt on a piece of paper. What I'm doing is describing the images unfolding in front of me there and then in real time. Now, even if I tell a story 300 times, I'm always going to see it, each scene, a little differently. And I'm very loyal to what I can see in that moment. I trust that the moment is trying to tell me something important. And it's the details that are given to you when you have the guts to wonder out loud. So that's what lights me up, is actually thinking through my imagination in public. When I was younger, I would do everything I could to practice and practice and practice and practice a story. But the reality is, these days, 
not a lot really happens. The synapses don't connect correctly in me until I'm in the hot spot, until wow. I feel uh, there's a, there was an anthropologist called Victor Turner, and he has a lovely word for which I think describes live storytelling, communitas. The, the audience are like a herd of animals. Their bodies are pressed together. There's almost steam coming from their backs. Their own imaginations are working furiously. You as the storyteller are just trying to dance with the story as best you can. And the story itself, as a wild animal, for me, it's always an encounter with a kind of very uncorralled animal. Um, that's the, that is a shit-kickingly great moment in my life. <laughs> uh, what I don't like is the feeling, if I come off the stage, that I've civilized the story. In other ah. words, I've just snipped away at it and made it behave. That's an, a, an awful thing for me. Now, I admire something you said earlier on, which is, you know, working uh, in schools or with younger people, because I love storytelling for kids. But if I'm going out with a heavy story, and I have heavy stories, it's a terrible thing for me if I suddenly see three rows of six-year-olds. It changes everything yeah. when I see their faces. It's not that I want to necessarily spare them the darkness of the story because kids adore darkness oh, <laughs> but there's just a way that my mind is going to go once i know children are present uh, this is nothing to do with kind of um hierarchy of of intellect or anything like that yeah. it just affects me in a particular way because uh, one of the things that i i love to do in public storytelling is when when God's telling me to do it, I will swear profusely. Right. Uh, and, you know, you know, I mean, within reason. Uh, there's, do, do, are you aware of um, uh, a Scottish comic called Billy Connolly? Oh, yeah. Love yeah. that guy. You know, you know, so Billy was probably the first real storyteller, in a sense, that I saw in the early 70s. You know, when I'd occasionally get to television, there was this wild man next yeah. to Michael Parkinson, who was a fairly, Michael Parkinson was great, but he was, you know, he's a host of a TV program right. and he's letting this lion, you know? Yeah. And Billy would say that there was a rhythm to swearing. There was a rhythm to it. And he said, I can't really trust people that are continually clipping the rhythm of the language of the tavern. Cause that's what it is to some degree. There yeah. could be a great poetry to swearing. So as soon as I see, Parents putting their ears over their hands over the child's ears. I think we're now into something where I I am I've already got one hand tied behind my back. I think is what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, it's. I think it's the same when you when you're telling um, like the spooky stories. You know, and the parents take their kids out of the room, and it's like no, 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 no. You gotta you gotta stay for this. The kids are okay with it. You gotta trust that your kids are okay with it. Because most of the time, the kid will want to stay and it's the parent that is oh, freaking course. out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because the kid's not going to imagine something that's too scary for themselves. No, and, and just to be absolutely clear, in the world I want to live in, children hear live storytelling every day. Oh, you my know, gosh, that's yes. What I, I, that's my <laughs> dream of dreams, is, is uh, a cherub army inspired and utterly rooted in the wildness of stories and telling stories themselves themselves what i'm really getting at actually is my admiration for people that do tell stories for children what do you think your most rewarding work has ever been i like telling long stories i like mm -hmm. telling and when i say long i can tell stories that'll last for five or six days oh wow uh, and that's always rewarding you get 200 people everyone signed up for this and for five or six days, we're deep into an Arthurian grail story or we're into the Odyssey. I had an encounter about three years ago, maybe four, where I went to Crete with a group of my very closest friends. And I told the Odyssey, I think for three or four days. And I remember when that ended, a particular silence coming in. No, none of us spoke for about 20 minutes, even though we were all there in the room, 
the story ended and such was the weight of it in in the mediterranean climate and the culture of the odyssey that was a, an extraordinary moment now i've actually had a school a functioning school for 17 years that began way back in my tent when i had three students that turned up and said hey we want to know something more about the stuff you do with rites of passage more about what you do with ceremony more about what you do with story so that led from three people to 60 and so for the last 17 years i've had the chance of working with groups of people for about 12 months at a time right and i must admit that in the end is a far more substantial encounter than doing 20 gigs in a row all over the country and every night half of the job is just having to show up and kind of establish who you are before right. you even begin so actually in terms of personal significance rather than a particular moment the school the school as a container for what i do has uh -huh. been you know deeply uh, deeply substantial to me and what's i was trying to look it up what's the name of the school i can't remember uh school of myth oh was... school of myth. Yeah, <laughs> can i not remember that yes i've been on the website and read it. it yeah it looks it looks fascinating it's something that i would absolutely love to get involved with but um not right not right now yeah. you you said that uh with your written work you you find this great rejuvenation mm. where where do you go inside when you're when you're writing i don't even know if i go uh inside i might go deeply outside uh okay i, I live in sense. a i i live on the edge of dartmoor national park i live in a kind of private place 500 acres of old growth forest a little celtic hill fort the cottage um two cats and so i live i live in a very um encouraging universe for writing uh, and I've lived in places that were not like that at all, so I'm particularly grateful about it. Um, there's an old Greek idea that all of us have something called a daimon. And the daimon, part of the daimon is, or part of the daimon's purpose is to remind you what you organically, indigenously stand for not what society has put on you, not what your partner wants you to be, not what you say in public to make people like you, but the true freak fire that lights you up. And good writing is me trying to get in touch with my daimon and then following to the letter its instructions, no matter how rough. Right. Um, and that has taken me so far, I probably have about half a million published words out there around storytelling, around myth, around poetics in general, around ecology. But what I'm trying to do is get in touch with something essential in me that cannot be communicated by anyone else. And that is not vanity. That's the same memo that we all have yeah. as human beings. Yeah. No, I think you have a very unique voice. I mean, absolutely. I would totally, <laughs> utterly agree with that. Tell me a little bit about your book, Courting the Wild Twin, where well, it came from and what, what inspired it. It's the first half of the book contains two fairy tales, uh, lesser known fairy tales that I've been telling for a long time. Mm -hmm. One is called The Lindworm, one is called Tatterhood. And they f focus on the idea that, and this is similar to the idea of the daimon actually, that on the night you were born, you had a twin that was promptly thrown out the window, chucked into the forest, sent away, and then you grow up with a kind of amnesia around your twin, no one refers to it. And then usually as we get older and life gets more difficult, we start to hear rumors of this twin. 
we start to recognize that we don't have as much energy at our disposal as we may wish for, that we don't take the kind of chances that we might have done when we were younger, that we are becoming, uh, again, in, in the negative sense of the word, civilized. The wild twin doesn't behave like that at all. And these two fairy tales, one of them is a story of what happens when the twin is sent into exile and the difficult stages of bringing back an energy that's now hostile to you. That's the lindworm. Yeah, it's the lindworm. And then the second one, Tatterhood, is a, is a much more kind of emotionally intact story about actually what happens when you grow up in very close proximity to your rambunctious, uh, shameless, gleeful, witty twin. Uh, so that's the first half of the book. Uh, I knew that I wanted to write about those two stories. It, I knew that they, they were wonderful because they're fairy tales. There's no stickiness about cultural appropriation. No one's getting upset about these stories being told. So I hope uh, that anybody of any ethnicity, shape, size, disposition can feel that these stories can take root in their imagination cleanly and without any kind of trouble. So I wanted to offer them up for that reason. And then secondly, the second half of the book uh, is called The Etiquette of the Underworld. And the whole book, for, which is weird for a start, was written very, very quickly. Often a book takes me a, a good chunk of time, but this was a matter of days, really, from one really? end to the other. Yeah. But wow. when, I look at it, when I look at it now, I'm very happy with it. I don't look at it as a, as a raw piece of work. I was just, obviously, it was right time, right moment, right publisher, let's do it. So there's an energy that I like. And some of my earlier books, which have a lot more, lot, a lot, a lot more ideas in them, uh, because they were written over time, they don't have the propulsion that Wild Twin yeah, had. Yeah, they I would agree. don't have that kind of move. So I'm very glad that it's in the canon. You know, I'm glad. So anyway, I started to write it. I wrote this second section, The Etiquette of the Underworld, which was really having a wrestle with the ecological state of our times. This was before coronavirus or anything like that that we knew of. Mm -hmm. uh, and arguing that it could be that as a culture we had already entered the underworld and we weren't aware of it yet. But as a mythologist, I was picking up lots of signs in, in contemporary culture that we were moving down into the realm of people like Baba Yaga, you know, yeah. we were moving down into the more difficult areas. And I asked for two seemingly opposing ideas to coexist in grown-ups, and they were this. One stop assuming that the earth is doomed stop assuming what gives you the right yeah. when you have children around you to think that you can utter this kind of inanity it's just cowardice to say that people mm -hmm. think they're being real uh but actually they paralyze their children when they say that and they uninvest them with the potential for another generation to make the changes that some of us are too moribund to do so first of all there's a bit of a scolding <laughs> And then secondly, weirdly, and seemingly opposite to that, I think that we need to have a big think, think and we're kind of doing it now actually with the, with the coronavirus, think about the reality that some things do end and our struggle with that, that actually we find it very difficult to accept the fact that things end. Uh, you know, you know that when people say, I don't like change, we don't like change. Right. Yeah, yeah. So the book ended. And I tell you what, if I hadn't, if I hadn't sat down to write the book, I would never have had the thought process that led to that th third of the book, that final third of the book were for me, which is the really important bit, which is having this communication and saying that actually within a myth, there's often more than one polemic. It's not just the hero from beginning, middle and end. I look for stories which have counterweight in them, which actually have some other idea or image showing up at the same time. 
Stories like Gilgamesh have tremendous complexity in them. Beowulf does. Mm, yeah. The whole notion, you know, the whole notion of Grendel, the loneliness of Grendel before the massacre takes place. There's a lot that goes on in these in these old stories. I can't bear it. I'm sure you can't either. When they people say glibly, "Oh, this is this isn't like a fairy tale." Have you never read a fairy tale? You <laughs> utter fool. <laughs> Fairy tales are full of the grimmest, most complex situations imaginable. The notion that all of them is just the the tip of of you know, and everybody lived happily ever. It's not like that, you know. Yeah, the, the, to live happily ever after, you've got to go through some serious shit so that you know how to deal with it all. Because yeah. if you don't learn how to deal with it, you're not going to live happily ever after. No. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking there was something that came up in my mind when you were talking. Oh, so the last third of the book is also almost a how-to on on telling stories. Yeah. And that caught me by surprise when I was reading the book. So why why did you decide to have that in there? I've always been very reluctant to do that. Uh, I don't teach. um, I know some fantastic practical teachers of storytelling. One is a woman called Jan Blake. Another is a man called Ben Haggerty, phenomenal teachers. And I knew I didn't really want to get into the chops of how to do it. But I realized that after having performed probably thousands of times, written and written and written and taught and taught and taught, that the, the inner life of the storyteller, mm-hmm. I, knew, I knew something about. And I wanted actually, I wanted to put it in the lap of people that weren't necessarily i have quite a i have i have a decent readership but they may not turn up at a storytelling festival or a storytelling event okay you know it's kind of a a slightly wider pool so i wanted to put in people's laps who may not have come across this before the notion that storytelling is a very broad church and that actually they themselves could contemplate you know, the joyful labor of carrying a tale. Yeah. And it is a joyful labor. It's, and, and the, the way that you wrote it, I really liked because you weren't, it was, it was kind of like you, you didn't, you didn't make the cake for them. You suggested some ingredients and you put some of those ingredients and you made some suggestions to other ingredients down and invited people to make what they want. And that, that's what I really liked about it. It wasn't like, this is how you should do it. It was, it was very, it was, it was an invitation to tell. I appreciate that. It get, what you're saying, what you noticed is going back to a thing I said earlier, which is this, everybody's a different animal. Everybody's a different weather pattern. Everybody is a different character. And so if you get too prescriptive, you know, 20,000 people read that book that's 20,000 different ecosystems. Yeah, yeah. So there is a limit to what you can tell everybody before they all start goose-stepping, you know? Yes. And I'm not a, not a fan of the goose-step. I don't think too uh, many people are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. Yes, I hope so. And so I, I love the old, the old Persian poet Hafez always has this idea of the way that we want to live. Go through your life and every prison cell you come to, throw in a key. You know, when someone is in pain, throw them a key. Yeah. And, and that book, I, I really hope, has some keys in it. That, that's what I was 100% trying to do. Well, it did for me, that's for sure. I can, I can speak for myself alone, but yes, absolutely. So, um, <clears throat> do you ever tell personal stories? Yes, I do. I, um, I, I do tell personal stories and I think the story, I mean, if you've read the night wages, yeah, I'm half, well, three quarters yeah, of the way through it. Yeah. That's a, Brilliant that's, book. A, that's a way, that's a way in which I talk about the things that are most significant to me, but with the kind of living philosophy of of myth around it and coming through it, because that's actually the nearest thing you can get to being inside my head. That's how I view everything. What is, what is front and foremost to me from the moment I get up is the living myths of what I'm experiencing. And then some way in the background is what people would call the nuts and bolts of the matter. 
right. uh, not the other way around. So I do tell personal stories, but they're kind of mashed up into the deeper significance of these stories that I think we really need to hear that have more of a um, more of a, a wider appropriateness. We all know how powerful a personal story is. And I like that, and I like to hear other people do it. But for me, there's a limit to it when I, I need something bigger to come in. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. I want to go back to Courting the Wild Twin again. You, you, say, you say, or you imply, I should say, or at least that's how it came across to me, you imply that uh, Western folk tales, when they are sleeping, can be more than nightmares. And you open Courting the Wild Twin with the business of stories is not enchantment. The business of stories is not escape. The business of stories is waking up. I'd really like you to talk about what, what you meant when you wrote down the business of stories is not enchantment. The business of stories is not escape. And the business of stories is waking up. Can you go into that in some depth? Because I, I really liked that. I will. And I'll also, I'll do it by just addressing your previous thing you were just saying around, you know, the, the story, uh, the storyteller themselves are sort of empty for a moment and every, it's the story, the story that does the work. Mm -hmm. I think actually my experience of that is kind of yes and no. <laughs> um, I don't like the feeling that the, the storyteller themselves are so utterly characterless uh, so 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 Buddhist in personality that nothing of their comes forward. So, for example, could you imagine if you went to John Lee Hooker or Howling Wolf or Muddy Waters and you said, or Muddy Water, and you said, uh, "Oh, I love these songs that you sing," but of course they have nothing to do with your life. They have nothing to do with your personality. You would be to. It, you know, at the, at the very least, you'd get a clip round the ear yeah. and they'd say, no, you idiot, I am these songs. I am these stories. And actually, that's why three storytellers can stand up and tell the same story, but there's one of them you love and two that you're indifferent to because you're just wired to hear it and it affects the pressure points, the acupuncture points in your own imagination. So I don't know... I hope all storytellers at their most efficacious have something more than their own character radiating into the room. But I think that that, if you're genuinely in service to the story, your personality aids it, not abets it. Yeah, I, yeah. No, I, I agree with so that. Not, not ego. No one needs to right. see a showboat but you do want to see a true human being up there. I, I'm, I love personality. You know? Well, that's how you connect with the, the you, you got to connect with the storyteller and that, that storyteller gives the personality of the story, like you were saying. But that's you also, it. but you need to, again, with the ego thing, you need to make sure that your ego is not in the way so that the story can come out. I that's think how that, I feel about it. Anyway. Yeah, I, well, I think you're exactly right. And I also think that that takes usually many 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 hours in the hot spot before finally you you you've got to have some utter disasters you've got to have you've got to have moments where your ego has possessed you and you've seen the audience recoil in horror <laughs> and you're misreading the signals and you know there's oh, yeah. blood dripping out of your ear you've got to have these store you've got to have these these whippings where you go back, lie on the bed in the dark and think, okay, I'm not going to do that again. Uh, I have a million of them <laughs> and they're, they're not over. Yeah. You do gradually something that I said, and I will get back to this issue about waking up with stories. The, the, the really important thing that I tried to say in wild twin is that actually in the end as a storyteller, the most profound thing you can do is allow all of you to show up. Because most of us, there's bits of us that we like, there's bits of us that we're less enamored by, and there are bits of us that we're appalled by. Yeah. And after 20 years of telling, almost all of me will appear over that two hours. Yeah. But it took a long, long, long time before I had the courage to do that. It's been incremental bit by agonizing bit. Now, 
to go back to the notion that storytelling is not just, uh, you know, it's not enchantment. I think we live in an enchanted universe most of the time. I'm in a trance state until I've had my coffee first thing in the morning anyway. I'm constantly being seduced by potential opportunities, uh, you know, uh, product placement, anything. Stories actually wake me up from that. They don't inspel me. They break the spell. You know, the stories that um, Jesus told in the years he, were, he was on the planet, some of them are extremely odd. They're cryptic, difficult to decipher, and the consequence of rocking along with Jesus is high. It is high. That's very attractive to me, because if I was looking to enchant a group of people, I would never have told the stories that Jesus told. Yeah. They're a, they're a very electrifying and peculiar set of memos, I think, if you're trying to get a big group of people together. Yeah. So that's they were also, what, at the time, they were incredibly radical. Well, and, and now. And yeah. now. I mean, I think anybody, you know, Jesus is, a, is thin-skinned in a way, and coming into these very charged experiences uh, and not behaving necessarily with the, you know, I would necess not necessarily the great maturity of a man in his 60s, but someone with an impossible metaphysical load on his back. Yeah. Uh, so that for me is part of the waking up. There are stories that wake us up, and you could say they are, again, this is coming back to my sort of uh, Christian background, really, stories that are prophetic in nature and stories that are pastoral in nature. Pastoral stories affirm, prophetic stories rattle. I like that. I like that. Ah, <laughs> oh dear. All right, so there's another thing that you wrote. There's another thing that you wrote. You wrote, folk tales have no distinct author, not wiggle from the penned agenda of one brain-boggled individual. Um, but a spin can still be put on a story by the storyteller. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they, yes, that's a, a, I'd argue that's a slightly different uh, conversation, but it is, it is true. I mean, I think now in the world of what you could think of as kind of mythic fiction, mm -hmm. you do absolutely get very good, very skilled authors creating stories which have a mythic undertow. But there's a difference between the word mythic and myth. They're, out, they're not the same. Yeah. They're not the same. You know, myth is to do with something that has passed through the jaws and imagination and stretches of time of lots and lots of people. That's how it gets its psychic purchase. You cannot do that in the, in the, in the mind of one person. I don't think Tolkien did it. I don't think Jeanette Winterson did it. Uh, no one does it. What they do is open this incredible door to mythic stories. So they, are, they have the gleam of the thing. They have tremendous substance. I adore them, to be clear. But I know what a myth is. And I right, know yeah. when a myth has come to into, into a room. And that, for me, is more than the author. The inflection the teller gives it is their genius that they bring to that moment. But the beast itself is far bigger than them. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Otherwise, I wouldn't be around. These stories, these mythic stories. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, if you could meet a storyteller, either living or dead, who do you think that would be? To chat and share stories and to discuss some of the stuff that we're discussing. The, he's, it's a posthumous, a, a posthumous request, mm -hmm. but I would like uh, some real time with the English uh, poet and writer Ted Hughes. Oh. Uh, Ted, uh, American audience will know him. He's a fairly controversial figure, maybe. Married to Sylvia Plath, spent a lot of time living up on Dartmoor, though he was a Yorkshireman, immersed in myth immersed in uh, poetics, immersed in the land. I'd love time with Ted. 
I'd also love time, if I'm going to be greedy for a second, with Robert Graves as well, the author of The White Goddess. Yet again, someone that actually wrote the original draft of that book when it was called The Roebuck in the Thicket. He wrote that in Brixham in three months. If you've got a copy of The White Goddess, you see how big it is? Yeah. The first draft, he did it in 12 weeks and then plumped the thing out. So Robert Graves, uh, Ted Hughes, of course, I'd love time. I'd love to doff my cap to Patti Smith, Jermaine Greer. We've got people like Nick Cave who are doing incredible things. Um, Jez Butterworth, who wrote the play Jerusalem. Dylan, of course. My favorite comedian at the moment, or my favorite storyteller is a comedian. He's an an Irish comedian called Tommy Tiernan. And Tommy is one of the most um, innovative players with imagination that I know of and is taking from my experience of what he's doing is he's taking comedy into a very ancient place. It's kind of back round the fire again. He's very popular. I mean, anybody, he's the King of Ireland, you know, he's the man. Uh, Tommy Tin and I, I would, I would absolutely advocate any young storytellers, any middle-aged storytellers, any older storytellers who want to see a not identical but related medium, hit YouTube and put his name in. I'm, I'm going to do that. <laughs> I've just yeah. written his name down. I'm not sure I've spelt it correctly. We'll I'll, find I'll, it. I'll find it, yeah. yeah. A trivial trivia question. What's yeah. your favourite breakfast? Where would you eat it? And who with? Um... <laughs> uh, I would, um, well, I, I, it's, it's always the same for me. It's, there, there's nothing better than, you know, eggs, bacon, sausage, fried bread, potato waffles, orange juice, toast, butter, and marmalade. Lots of coffee, very good coffee. It'll have to be Pete's Major Dickinson's blend, followed by English breakfast tea. And uh, the woman I would be with is none of your business. <laughs> I didn't ask woman. I just said, who would it be with? <laughs> <laughs> well, it would certainly, that's who I would want to have it with. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, so none of my business works very well. I, I hope you and none of my business have a very long and prosperous life together. Thank you. So, Martin, it's been, for me, it's been an absolute joy uh, chatting with you and uh, getting some insight into who you are and, and how you work and, and uh, some of your thoughts. I, again, totally and utterly appreciate your writing. Uh, totally inspired me. It's, as I said, one of the, one of the emails that I sent to you, it, it's just given me that I was on a plateau and you give me that push to go up the next part of the hill. And oh, so I really man. appreciate, I, I really appreciate that. And uh, thanks for your time. And uh, hopefully we'll meet in person at some point in the not too distant future. Bless you, man. I hope you found that hour was as well spent as you thought it would be. Actually, I hope it was way better than you ever imagined. It was hard not to keep going on, but I have never met him, except here, and had a feeling that maybe fanboy me would creep in. I hope I get to meet Martin soon, in the flesh, or at least do some work with him at some point in the future. Visit his two websites to find out more, order his books, go on retreat with him. His website is Dr. Martinshaw.com, drmartinshaw.com, and schoolofmyth.com. Thanks again, Martin. I greatly appreciated our time together for this episode. Remember, everyone, wash your hands. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. And if you think I should interview certain folk and fairy tale, myth, and legend storytellers, send me an email. You can find me and my work on Facebook, Simon Brooks Storyteller which is also my website. That would be simonbrookstoryteller.com. And Diamond Scree? Yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller. A shout-out to Chris Jett for creating and recording and letting me use the wonderful music for my podcast. His band is called Blackpool Mecca. Check them out. You can help keep this podcast alive by becoming one of my Patreons. And I'm going to give you a list of some of the wonderful people who have so far helped me keep this going. I'd like to say thanks to, in no particular order, Andy Davis, Claire Miller, Christine Riddell, Cynthia Rinty, 
Eleanor Benjamin, Lisa Permain, Harvey Helbron, Hope Lewis, Jenny Cargill, Kristen Langley, Laura Packer, Merrick Bennett, Pat Spaulding, Rachel Ann Harding, Ralph Chaddis, Scott Moore, Tatiana Brainerd, Ted Parkhurst, Tim Retina, Valerie Young Baldwin, and Lisa Overholzer. I hope I pronounced that right. Thanks, everyone. If you do become a patron, you can pay anything from a dollar for an episode that you enjoyed or a regular monthly subscription. In return, you do get extras, early release, and exclusive content on my work. And you can find that at www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. If you cannot do that, then help me out by doing something you can do. And I know you can. It's not that hard. If you could leave a review on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, or all of these places, wherever you found this episode, it helps not just me, but others to find and enjoy this podcast. Thanks again for being here with me. I know there are a lot of other places you could be, and I appreciate it. Keep washing your hands, stay safe, try and stay isolated. Until next time, be healthy, be happy, and share the stories you love. Cheers.